and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. I had to open with this because it was absolutely irresistible. According to New Scientist, you can listen to an Australian duck say, you bloody fool, like a human. So if there's one thing, dear <laughs> listener, you do today, please visit NewScientist.com to hear this captive musk duck named Ripper who has mimicked sounds heard as a hatchling. And the real science nugget takeaway here is that adult musk ducks can mimic the sounds they hear as hatchlings, including things like a pony snorting, oh. a door slamming, a man coughing, and even what was probably some former caretaker's catchphrase, you bloody fool. So are we sure that this isn't just like a skinwalker? Like, do we know for sure it's a duck? <laughs> We can only hope. Right. <laughs> it's a little simpler than that. These are large gray Australian waterbirds, and they usually learn how to make high-pitched whistles from their older flockmates. But when you raise these individual waterbirds in captivity away from other musk ducks, and I have to say there is a typo. This one says musk dusks. So not only is it a tongue twister, but it's also a, an easy typo to get away with. Uh, the Latin name is Biziura lobata, but now they join the esteemed ranks of parrots, hummingbirds, certain songbirds, whales, seals, bats, elephants, and humans, but not other primates, as vocal language learners. Hmm. Peter J. Fulgar shared his conserved audio clips, and in the clip, you can hear Ripper waddling and splashing around and speaking swear words when acting aggressively and imitating a slamming door when trying to attract females. We can only hope his efforts have been successful. Poor dear. So this is like an old recording. This duck is long dead yes. and now we're listening to it. That's kind of creepy. I, re I think I would find it much less disturbing if the duck was still alive. I mean, yeah. I don't know how long ducks live. Sure. <laughs> and it is somewhat akin to looking at old photography of like windows and being like, look, you can see the boy that's been haunting right. the building in this right. little after image. So it's like, how legit is this? But Fuligar also shared an audio clip of a second male that was raised on the same reserve with his mother in 2000, along with Pacific black ducks, that quack like common park ducks, the kind of quack you're used to hearing. Mm -hmm. And this young unnamed duck, unnamed, I'm glad Aww. they called that out, grew up to imitate the quacking black ducks around him. So after the bird researcher verified the recording's authenticity, he used software to confirm that the birds were repeating noises from their environment, in some cases sounds that they had only heard in the first weeks of life. Hmm. And in the recordings, the ducks made these sounds dozens of times in a matter of minutes at about four second intervals. And so, you know, it's not much, but anytime there is, you know, a learned vocalization from a non-primate species, sure. I get unduly excited. Like hearing dogs say, I love you! And it's for real. They are <laughs> saying, I love you. 
Yeah, I actually had no idea that hummingbirds yeah. copy sounds as well. That me neither, me but you know I've gotten super obsessed with hummingbirds and feeding them since the pandemic and the lockdown started, so I plan to test this over the years, <laughs> and I will report back if I can get a convo going. Yeah, you gotta, like, stand outside their nest and, like, say the same thing over and over, but then you gotta choose really carefully what you're gonna teach them to say, because I imagine mm. <laughs> you can't get, like, the whole of the odyssey out of them. You gotta stick to something small. <laughs> You know, right. And if it's going to be repeated a lot, it's going to get picked up. And so if I can create a welcoming environment full of love and kindness, maybe I can teach them something like we love you or it'll be OK instead of you bloody fool. <laughs> you and I are very different, Angie. <laughs> oh, next link. Next link. This article comes to us from sfchronicle.com, and it's titled, How One Foil-Wrapped Home Survived the Calder Fire as Everything Around It Burned. Like the whole house oh was wrapped in foil. Yes. Awesome. Literally. That sounds fun. Yeah. I mean, yeah, if there's like a fire encroaching on your land, that's scary, but wrapping a whole house in foil sounds like one of those awesome pranks. That doesn't right. actually hurt anybody as opposed to a lot of pranks, which do. Yeah, like mm -hmm. it just makes an unholy amount of popcorn in your living room or <laughs> go home. Well, I think that the people were not in these homes, so maybe they left some popcorn behind. But uh, yeah, this is pretty much about how foil has uh, saved the day for some homes. So when the voracious Calder fire raced through forested Phillips near South Lake Tahoe, it destroyed dozens of cabins but spared a couple. Wrapping buildings with what are known as fire blankets or aluminized structure wrap can foil the flames of a wildfire. Ah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the blankets are designed to help protect cabins and other structures in three ways. One, by preventing firebrands or large burning embers from entering buildings through gutters, eaves, vents, broken windows, mm. and roofs. Two, by keeping homes from making a direct contact with the flames. And three by reflecting thermal radiation from a large fire burning nearby over a sustained period, possibly protecting the house from bursting into flames from the intense heat. Mm -hmm. huh. Fumiaki Takahashi, an engineering professor at the Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, has conducted experiments in laboratories and also in a prescribed burn area and concluded that two-layer blankets with an aluminum surface can block up to 92% of the convective heat and 96% of the radiation. Wow. He told the Chronicle, it is effective for protecting structures for a short period while the wildfire front passes, five to 10 minutes, but longer protection would be needed to prevent structure-to-structure -structure ignition. So mm. it's not going to work for, you know, your apartment building or your house <laughs> that's right next to another house, <laughs> right. most likely. I didn't realize these are, like, manufactured blankets for this purpose, though. Like, I thought there was somebody with a big old roll of foil just circling around their house with a staple gun. Like, yeah. would that help at all? Or was that just, like, meaningless? Like, you got to have the blanket insulation, too, I bet. Yeah, it probably will not work because they add some other ah. insulated stuff to it. And if you look at the pictures on this original article, it really does look like the house is just surrounded in a massive version of regular tinfoil. Like, it crinkles in the same way. Hmm. It's just scaled up at everything. So the foil is usually applied with thousands of staples and isn't off-the-shelf Reynolds wrap, though it is sold in rolls. It's aluminum on the outside and woven threads of polyester and fiberglass inside, hmm. according to Dan Herning, founder of FireZat, a San Diego company that sells the foil. And while foil-wrapped houses may seem like a new technology, Herning says, the idea was born in the Yellowstone National Park fires in 1988. 
when firefighters working to protect a remote historic building had to flee but cut up some of their protective fire shelters and tack them to the building. They've also been used by broadcasting and telecommunications companies to protect transmitters and repeaters, as well as by homeowners, mainly people who own large remote estates or large family cabins. But the popularity of the foil among owners of smaller mountain homes has grown in recent years. Government firefighting agencies used to account for about 95% of earnings business, but that's gradually shifted, and homeowners now account for 40% of sales. Wow. Hmm. It's got to be a lot in California, I imagine. You mm-hmm. get one good wildfire through the area, and everyone's like, you know, we should invest in one of these yeah. blankets. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. But unfortunately, wrapping the family cabin in protective foil isn't something that can be easily accomplished as the fire nears. Covering a typical cabin in foil takes four to five people, six to seven hours, and thousands of staples. Wow. Wait, so do you just like leave the staples in when you're done? Because removing that many staples from a home sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends how much you care, right? Super fair. You get one of those little staple pullers and you just go to town, tell the kids, (laughs) you get a cookie for every 20 staples you pull, and you know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You find someone who really likes bubble wrap and see if you can transfer that skill set. So fires that sells 200-foot rolls of five-foot-wide foil wrap for $687 to install the blanket, a homeowner and helpers place the roll on a shovel or broom handle and spool out the wrap, starting at the bottom of one wall of the house, stapling it into place, then moving up, overlapping the previous layer by a couple of inches. Once the house is covered, Herning recommends topping the foil shield with chicken wire to help hold it in place as the fire (laughs) nears and winds pick up. Buyers are also required to sign a waiver acknowledging that the product is not guaranteed to prevent a wrapped structure from being damaged or destroyed. Jennifer Diamond, a spokesperson for the team fighting the Calder fire, wasn't sure who wrapped the Phillips Tract cabin, but said she's helped cover a historic backcountry building with foil in the past. Aside from historic buildings, firefighters might choose to wrap a remote cabin where property owners have already cut back vegetation, cut down overhanging trees, and cleared roofs and gutters of debris. She said, we don't have a lot of time to do all that. It takes a lot of time and effort and firefighters to wrap a cabin. And it's not something we can run around and do to everything. I imagine you could do it a little bit like an Amish barn raising. Like, you know, if you've got like 15 cabins in a little area Mm -hmm. and you all know this thing is coming in the next two days, just get everybody together and wrap all the houses, you know, draw straws to see who gets to go first or whatever. But I feel like if you had (laughs) 20 or 40 people... You could get them all done. You get a system going. Be efficient about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's my advice anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my advice is uh, don't live in California wildfire zones. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, probably better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so say the Texans. So a uh, grain of salt in that one, guys. Yeah. Yeah, well. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> when, when my house is carried away by a flood, I'll talk to you about like buoyant <laughs> flood <laughs> options. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Next link. Next link. All right, this next article is from freethink.com, and it's called The History of Boredom Might Surprise You. Mm. So they start by questioning a premise that I think we've all heard in recent years, which is that we as a society, but especially children, need more time for boredom, right? There's Mm -hmm. this notion that the constant barrage of information and digital entertainment keeps our imaginations idle or almost drugged, in a sense, and never gives it a chance to really spread out and get going. And the central core of that belief is that we used to be bored all the time in the, quote, good old days, and now we're not. So the author is digging into that and trying to figure out if it's really true. And one of the major sources quoted in the article is a book called Bored, Lonely, Angry, Stupid by Susan Matt, a history professor at Weber State University. 
And Matt says that the earliest documentation we have of boredom actually goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks, who had the concept of acedia or listlessness. But the idea started to transform a little when the early Christians began using acedia to refer to monks who went out into the desert and were struck with a melancholy that made them falter in their devotion to God. So whereas before acedia was bad only because you felt bad while it was happening, now acedia was causing you to be distracted from your religious duties and was thus sinful. Hmm. So then, as we know, Christianity began to spread and become more powerful. And by the 12th century, you start to see this concept being applied to the average parishioner and not just the monks. And maybe coincidentally, maybe not, right around the same time, the French language first developed the word ennui, which was entirely separate from religion and meant something closer to the original Greek word, focusing on how boredom was unpleasant, but without any moral failing attached. So we fast forward to the 18th century. The Americans and the French get real cozy during the American Revolution, and American English starts to commandeer some French words, including ennui. But they again turn it outward and focus on how it's a scourge to society, not necessarily in a religious sense, but in the sense that it can cause drunkenness and idleness. And it starts getting listed as both a cause and a symptom of mental illness in a lot of sanitarium and asylum reports. Hmm. But interestingly, ennui in America at that time was considered an affliction only of the rich. So the working class had plenty to keep them busy, they thought, (laughs) which meant ennui started to get tied up in this sort of class guilt where people saw it as a negative side effect of too much leisure time. (laughs) Well, and that's kind of where we are today, right? It's just like, ah, you spend too much time on your phone. You need to be more productive or, you know. (laughs) But the working class, meanwhile, was more likely to use words like wearisome or dull. And for them, it wasn't connected to morality. It was just seen as a natural byproduct of their work. And the key is that they didn't really feel bad about it. Tedium was just sort of an opportunity to daydream or think about other things. And Matt says the reason for this was that the working class up to this point still mostly meant farmers and homesteaders. So there was actually a sense of virtue tied up in their sense of monotony that you were doing this for yourself or your family and you saw the direct benefits of your labor. Mm. And then came the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, the working class was working for someone else, being a tiny part of a whole and largely considered interchangeable. And Matt argues that this took the sort of personal value out of work and is when the word boredom first emerged as the working class version of ennui. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not that working in a factory is any more tedious than working on a farm. Farming is super tedious. It's just that they lost that emotional connection of feeling like there was a purpose to all the tedium. Mm -hmm. Yeah, relatable content right there. Right. And the difference becomes even more obvious when you get into the concept of the 40-hour work week, at which point industrial workers actually had more free time on average than farmers. But we're still more likely to suffer from this new concept of boredom. And this is, not coincidentally, when the entertainment industry became a thing as a sort of societal trade-off that said you do boring things for money, but then you get to spend that money on non-boring things. And the discussion of whether that was good for us began instantaneously. Like, you literally have psychologists in the 1920s questioning whether weekly radio shows were too much sensory overload and whether it was going to lead to, quote, nervous people who demand ever more excitement in their lives. Okay, to be fair, that is right on the mark. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And it was only by the 1950s that the argument had come full circle to where we are today, with intellectuals saying that entertainment is actually the cause of both boredom and the depressive feelings that we assume go hand in hand with it. 
and that these activities prevent people from truly accessing their minds. Whoa. Okay.、Yeah. I mean, you had me up until here, but I want my MTV. Yeah, <laughs> that's good because not all modern scholars agree with it. Okay, Obviously,、sorry. Susan Matt doesn't, but there's also John Eastwood, a psychology professor at York University. He runs something called the Boredom Lab, which has done lots of cool studies on the interplay between attention, cognition, and emotion. And Eastwood says that boredom is less about what you're doing and more about how you're engaged with what you're doing and whether you feel、Ooh. a sense of personal agency. And this is largely the same thing Matt's arguing, right? With the history of、mm -hmm. independent farmers versus factory workers. It's not that being a small part of something big is bad. It's about whether you feel like you're having a personal impact on the outcome or that you're part of something meaningful, right? Yeah. Which is good news and bad news because, given all that, Eastwood says seeking out quiet contemplation just for the sake of quiet contemplation isn't going to help you if you still feel fundamentally powerless in your life. But on the flip side, playing a mindless game on your smartphone for a few hours isn't necessarily a bad thing. If you feel good about yourself in general and aren't just using it to "quote unquote" make yourself feel better about the bad parts of your life,、mm. so if you're taking true pleasure in something and not trying to stave away the wolves of darkness, and right? Some, you know, psychological trap that you've set for yourself. Okay, okay, exactly. Which,、uh, you know, in this modern environment, seems like a little bit of a big ask to me. Right, but, it does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, don't just turn the computer on or off. Fix your entire outlook on the world. So you know,、yeah. just no biggie. Be better. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when does this homework do? Jeez. Yeah, and it, you know it's very good for children too because it's like, okay, well, what if I take away more screen time? And they're like, oh no, that's not going to help. You have to actually raise them to be good people. And I'm like, oh, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> Fine.、Uh. But it means I get to let them have more screen time now, right? That's what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. I'm here for this history trip, so let's take it in a different direction with DiscoverMagazine.com's "The Ancient Art of Tattooing."、Ooh. It's a really cool kind of look at how historically and culturally tattooing has both been celebrated and railed against.、Sure. But before I begin, just out of curiosity, I already know the answer for Wei. But do you <laughs> have any tattoos? I do not. I have always thought about. Basically, my plan would be if I said to myself, "I want a tattoo," I would wait five years, and if I still wanted that same tattoo in the、Ooh. same place, then I would get、mm -hmm. it. And I've never pulled that off. Yeah, five years is not generous, but that's longer than I usually hear. I usually hear twelve months,、mm -hmm. but that's also how you end up with tattoos. Maybe you weren't that attached to. But, right, exactly.、Yeah. <laughs> I'm a very fickle person. I know that. <laughs> same. I, that's me too. I change my mind too frequently. I can't settle on a hair color, let alone a tattoo. But right. Regardless, if you have tattoos, you are part of a long and storied ancient tradition, which you probably already know. But let's get、mm. into some of the cool details of this. The word tattoo, if you don't already know, means to strike in some Polynesian languages. So that's sort of the root of where the word is. People have pigmented their skin for one reason or another in just about every known culture. So this is something that has been with us for a really long time. Even at several Paleolithic sites throughout Europe, archaeologists have uncovered bone needles and other instruments that may have been used for tattooing tens of thousands of years ago. Obviously, well-preserved skin is scarce. Right. <laughs> However, no one can say for sure when our ancestors began modifying their bodies in this fashion. 
For a while, the oldest definitive evidence came from ancient Egypt, where several female mummies dated to the early Middle Kingdom displayed what were likely fertility symbols. Hmm. That record was broken only in 1991 when two tourists discovered the mummified remains of Otzi the Iceman in a glacier in the Italian Alps. He had 61 tattoos dating back to 5,300 years, and most of the patterns were on his spine, wrist, and ankle joints. According to x-ray images, they indicate he suffered from arthritis and abdominal pain, so some researchers are thinking those markings were meant to be therapeutic. Hmm. It's like acupuncture, but with art involved. Exactly right. And so it's like, you know, it kind of makes sense if I ever really had conditions that needed acupuncture, like having a tattoo to like map it out, maybe not a bad idea, right? (laughs) In more recent history, tattoos have come to signify pretty much everything across the board, right? Uh, The ancient Greeks used them to mark slaves and criminals, and the Romans extended this practice to soldiers. But neither civilization was really big about tattooing for the general populace. Mm -hmm. They associated tattoos mostly with the Britons, the Goths, and the Thracians, and other so-called barbarians from which Mm -hmm. they wanted to distinguish themselves. (laughs) Right. When it comes to subject matter, animals were a frequent source of inspiration, both real and legendary animals. A Scythian chief from the Pazarig Valley in present-day Siberia, who was preserved in a tomb since the first millennium B.C., He was discovered bedecked with what Gilbert calls a variety of fantastic beasts. All across his torso and limbs, he has a horse, a ram, a fish, two griffins, and a pack of other more monstrous creatures. Hmm. But religious roadblocks have been a thing for a while. A lot of people have tried to outlaw it. Uh, Leviticus 19.28, quote, Ye shall not make any markings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. That should be a fun subject to approach strangers with Christian tattoos uh, (laughs) when you go out into the world. (laughs) Roman Emperor Constantine outlawed facial tattooing when he converted to Christianity in 325 AD. And then for the next thousand years, Europe's collective skin remained more or less unadorned. Although (laughs) this article is quick to point out that Many pilgrims to the Holy Land did commemorate their voyages with a tattooed cross or other symbol, clearly (laughs) overlooking that Leviticus passage I just Mm -hmm. read. Anthropologist Lars Krutak explains that to many pagan peoples who identified themselves by the cuts in their skin, it would be sacrilegious not to be tattooed. In many parts of Polynesia, Asia, Africa, and the Americas, they were communal rites of passage, Mm -hmm. right? You needed them for acceptance in society because if you weren't marked, you would be ridiculed and shamed. When British explorer James Cook and his crew traveled to the South Pacific in the late 1700s, they encountered the native peoples of Tahiti, New Zealand, and other islands, many of whom were covered in geometric shapes and spiral lines. And while (laughs) I have no idea how this happened, so I may need to research this further, while some sailors were forcibly marked, others took a liking to this exotic (laughs) art and even established tattoo parlors when they came home. With that, it became fashionable again. And so these days, you know, people mostly have tattoos as a means of self-expression, a way to honor the memory of events or loved ones. To some, it has just a mere connotation of rebellious youth. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. we're still participating in a ritual that has captivated countless generations of ancestors. Yeah, it's interesting that we've never really, in modern times, in modern Western times, gone back to the idea of tattoos as a widespread symbol for something. Like, you don't still get a lot of, you know, like, oh, we all belong to this club. Let's all get a tattoo together. You have some mm-hmm. of it. Like, I know some fraternities where they all got tattoos. Right. And got or the Fellowship man. of the Rings when they finished filming the Peter Jackson trilogy. Right. They all got, yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. 
But even then, it's still sort of small and pictorial. Like you don't get a lot of this like three lines on your wrist means you've killed three people, four lines, right. you know, or, or things that are generally mm -hmm. understood. Or this pattern of your chin means that you belong to this blood lineage of family. And I mean, mm -hmm. that would be a pretty cool tradition to start with in a family if you're really into that sort of thing, as long as you did it in an appreciative way and not in an appropriative way. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, though. Like, if my parents had tattoos and I just turned 18 and they're like, now nah, you're getting a tattoo to match ours, I think I would really reject that. I would not be on board. I mean, even if it were like a super well done Tweety Bird, are you sure? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from gizmodo.com, and it's titled, A single laser fired through a keyhole can expose everything inside a room. Hmm. So, researchers at the Stanford Computational Imaging Lab have expanded on a technique called non-line-of-sight imaging, so that just a single point of laser light entering a room can be used to see what physical objects might be inside. It's a clever technique that's been refined in research labs over the years to create cameras that can remarkably see around corners and generate images of objects that otherwise aren't in the camera's field of view. Previously, the technique has leveraged flat surfaces like floors or walls that are in line of sight of both the camera and the obstructed object. A series of light pulses originating from the camera, usually from lasers, bounce off these surfaces and then bounce off the hidden object before eventually making their way back to the camera's sensors. Algorithms then use the information about how long it took these reflections to return to generate an image of what the camera can't see. These results aren't high resolution, but they're usually detailed enough to easily determine what the object in question is. Mm -hmm. But the current NLOS techniques have a big limitation. They're dependent on a large reflective surface where light reflections coming off a hidden object can be measured. Right. And trying to image what's inside a closed room from the outside is all but impossible. Or at least it was until now. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. The keyhole imaging technique is so named because all that's needed to see what's inside a closed room is a tiny hole, such as a keyhole or a peephole, large enough to shine a laser beam through, creating a single dot of light on a wall inside. As with previous experiments, the laser bounces off a wall, an object in the room, and then off the wall again, with countless photons eventually being reflected back through the hole and to the camera, which utilizes a single photon avalanche photo detector to measure the timing of the return. When an object hidden in the room is static, the new keyhole imaging technique simply can't calculate what it's seeing. But the researchers have found that a moving object paired with pulses of light from a laser generate enough usable data over a long period of exposure time for an algorithm to create an image of what it's seeing. And the quality of the results is even worse than with previous NLOS <laughs> techniques, but it still provides enough detail to make an educated guess on the size and shape of the hidden object, and so long as it's moving. Right, so know, like if supposedly. there's a carousel inside your closed bedroom, they'll figure that out. But if everybody stays still, it's like the T-Rex, they can't see you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, at least in terms of, you know, if you're concerned about privacy and whatnot, mm -hmm. or getting your door kicked down by SWAT... At least you'll know they're here by a red dot on your wall. Right. You know, so <laughs> hold still, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> well, very few keyholes these days are actually holes anyway. They don't go all the way through. That's like an old school, you know, haunted hotel kind of keyhole. Yeah. Could do it under the door. Stuff like that. Yeah. Our weather stripping's not good. They're definitely going to get in under <laughs> our door. <laughs> well, besides the mysterious they. Uh, right, right. <laughs> whoever that could be. Uh, next link. Next, Next link. link. 
All right. Well, if you've gone out shopping recently, you've probably noticed the Halloween decorations are already on display. And in honor of that rapidly approaching holiday, we have this grisly article from Live Science called Milkweed Butterflies Tear Open Caterpillars and Drink Them Alive. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. And I have to say, we've been doing this podcast for almost two years now, and I've been reading even longer than that. And this opening paragraph is the most insane thing I have ever read in a news publication. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of news, so I'm excited. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Quote, not all caterpillars grow up to be beautiful butterflies. Some become living milkshakes for their dads who guzzle caterpillar body fluids to attract the ladies. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So this behavior was observed in North Sulawesi, Indonesia, in adult milkweed butterflies, so named because as caterpillars, they primarily feed on milkweed plants. And the milkweed plant is special because it contains toxic alkaloids, which make them unsuitable for many insects to eat. But the milkweed caterpillar has evolved to not only tolerate these chemicals, but actually concentrate them inside their bodies and process them into new compounds that they can use to ward off predators. Hmm. But the alkaloids are also used to create mating pheromones. And this is where the caterpillars have gotten themselves into a little evolutionary trouble. Because generally the way it works is that a caterpillar of any species stuffs itself with nutrients, and that creates a sort of biological backlog that it can use once it becomes a butterfly. Butterflies do eat, but generally speaking, there's an early onboarding of supplies that the butterfly doesn't really seek out once it's in the flying stage of life. But at some point along the way, the male milkweed butterflies figured out that if a little bit is good, maybe more is better. They don't have the same leaf-chomping apparatus that a caterpillar does. They only have a thin little proboscis for drinking nectar. So these male milkweed butterflies developed a scratching technique with their feet to scrape open the surface of the milkweed plant and drink up more of these alkaloids, which again means better survival from predators and a better ability to attract a mate. So it makes sense that they figured this out. Mm -hmm. And all that has been known for a long time. But now, for the first time, some of these male milkweed butterflies in Indonesia have realized, hey, the milkweed plant only has so much. But that milkweed caterpillar over there has already done all the work and is chock full of this stuff. So they have started attacking the young of their own species using the same foot scraping technique to tear them open and then, quote, actively drink from the wounded and oozing caterpillars. Their own species. Mm hmm. So lead study author Yi Kai Ti said that the butterflies were so intent on drinking from the caterpillars that not even the touch of a human observer could distract them. What? (laughs) They also noted that the caterpillar larvae would contort their bodies rapidly in what appeared to be futile attempts to deter the persistent scratching of adults. Oh, my God. So there's just full-on genocide going on here. It's not good. This is horrific. I mean, butterflies? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. No, they're brutal and they're jerks, man. (laughs) So to describe the behavior, the scientists coined the term kleptopharmacophagy, which could be roughly translated as eating stolen chemicals. Wow. They think the behavior probably came about initially because the male butterflies would be attracted to the smell of milkweed leaves that are already damaged by hungry caterpillars who are then likely to be found nearby. You know, maybe one got scratched by accident and it was only then that the powerful chemical smell made the butterflies realize what a payload they were sitting on. Mm -hmm. At any rate, like you said, it's never a good evolutionary plan to murder (laughs) your own offspring. 
So I don't think mm-hmm. in the long term that this is going to survive. But in the meantime, <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be a pretty bad scene down at the milkweed garden for those poor caterpillars. <laughs> you imagine, I always think of like the thing they do in movies where one, the bad guy is like, ah, it opens his mouth and is like sucking the life force out of the mouth of the, uh, of the victim. You imagine him doing that to a caterpillar. <laughs> <laughs> While he's wearing wings and being like a butterfly. Mm-hmm. No, my brain refuses yeah. to accept this. All right. Well, uh, don't go visit Indonesia then because you will see it. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. Good news, everyone. According to fizz.org, after six months on Mars, NASA's tiny copter is still flying high. Go tiny copter. Good. That that seems like that's a long time for it, I guess. Yes. Yes. It was only supposed to fly five times. But NASA's Hmm. Ingenuity helicopter, it's completed 12 flights and it's not done yet. It's not ready to retire. So Josh Rabich, the head of Ingenuity's mechanical engineering team, was positively glowing in this quote. (laughs) Everything is working so well. We're doing better on the surface than we expected, which is also fun to read if you can imagine a really frazzled mechanical engineering head who's absolutely perplexed as to why everything is working so well, right? It could also Right, he's just giddy, like, oh my god, you guys! (laughs) It could be happy or it could be deeply suspicious, too. Like, everything is working so well! (laughs) Right. But I mean, hundreds of people did contribute to this project, so maybe it's not a surprise after all. Only about a dozen currently retain day-to-day roles. And part of the reason they're so shocked at how long this has lasted is because the air on Mars has a density equivalent to only 1% that of Earth's atmosphere. So to compare this, like flying a helicopter on Mars would be like flying one in the thin air nearly 20 miles above Earth. And it wasn't easy getting to Mars in the first place. Ingenuity had to withstand the initial shock of takeoff from Earth. And then of the February 18th landing on the Red Planet, following a seven-month voyage through space, strapped to the rover's belly. Talk about a stowaway. Wow. And then once it was on Mars, the four-pound copter has had to survive the glacial cold of Martian nights. And it's been drawing warmth from the solar panels that charge its batteries during the day. Its flights are guided using an array of sensors since the 15-minute lag in communications from Earth makes real-time guidance impossible. It had its maiden flight on April 19th, made history, and it has gone on to fly 11 more times. Quote, by flight three, we had actually accomplished all of our engineering goals and got all the information we had hoped to get. All put together, it's covered a distance of 1.6 miles, which is quite mighty for a helicopter we're operating from here on another planet. Right. So right now it's being sent out to scout the way for Perseverance using its high resolution color camera, which kind of makes you think of Tails and Sonic. Yeah, it's like Tinkerbell. It's yes! this little flying buddy who goes out and then comes back and tells him what's out there. <laughs> Tinkerbell is a way better comparison. <laughs> I don't know. I like Tails. <laughs> <laughs> Tinker Tails. I smell go. a new brand coming up. But they're doing this to chart a new path for the rover that is safe, but also that hopefully has some scientific interest, specifically with respect to like geological terms. You ever think that they maybe like really downplay the expectations where they like, (laughs) they honestly thought it was going to fly about 20 times, but they're like, no, no, say five. Yeah. And then. Listen, the best project managers know you. Under promise and over deliver. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. This article's a little creepy. <laughs> Good. Excellent. It comes to us from theguardian.com and it's titled Experience A Stranger Secretly Lived in My Home. <gasps> 
All right. I have a story, yeah. but I'm going to save it. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, awesome. So this one is uh, written in the first person by Amber Dawn. In 1995, when Amber Dawn was 20, she moved to Enumclaw, a farming town in the U.S. state of Washington, to be close to her brother and his family. She rented an apartment. Her room was on the top floor, but on her first night lying in bed, she heard footsteps above her. Over the months, Dawn started to notice things going missing. She'd buy a six-pack of soda, drink one, come home from work, and find only four left. Mm -hmm. It was the same with packets of soup and ramen noodles. She also noticed that doors she'd left open were closed or vice versa. Mm. And mostly she found it amusing. She assumed that her brother, who had a key, was coming over and eating her food. <laughs> and looking back, she says she should have known it wasn't him because there would have been dirty dishes everywhere. Oh, <laughs> yeah. That's what? funny. Yeah. She got a puppy. When the puppy was being toilet trained, she kept her in the bathroom. One day when Amber was out, the apartment flooded. Oh, no. And it came home to find the puppy in the sink. She was tiny. She didn't know how she could have got up there unless someone had put her there to save her. Aww. And Amber Dawn continued to hear footsteps. There was a hatch in the ceiling leading to what she assumed was an attic. Uh, she asked her landlady if there was any way someone could be up there, who said, no way, it's probably a squirrel or raccoons. Th so Amber Dawn pushed it out of her mind. Then one day she called in sick to work. She lay on the couch all day and at 11 p.m. turned off the lights, lit a candle, and ran a bath. And as she lay in the water, she noticed the attic hatch was open. <gasps> and suddenly, everything slowed way down. <laughs> what took about 30 seconds felt like five minutes. All the puzzle pieces fell into place. The footsteps, the food, the puppy. Someone was in her apartment. Wow. Yeah. Amber Dawn's first thought was, if they'd wanted me dead, I would be dead. Oh, sure. They had had enough access to her for six months. She assumed it must be a man or someone tall enough to get up there without a ladder. And she knew she had to stay cool and not scare him just in case he hurt her. <laughs> she walked naked to the bedroom to get her robe, passing the mirrored closet she suspected he was hiding in. Then she went to the kitchen, got a hammer out of the drunk drawer for protection, and called her sister-in-law. <laughs> whispered, I think there's someone in my house. And she said, get out now, I'm on my way. Three minutes later, the sister was outside. They both went back to her house and called the cops. They didn't find anybody, but there was a nest of stuff in the <sighs> attic, a sleeping bag, some food, and a book. They never told her what he was reading, <laughs> uh, which is an interesting detail to include yeah. <laughs> and to care about. But I guess if you've got somebody living in your attic for, you know, however many months, you kind of want to know what their deal is. Well, I mean, they obviously know so much about you. It feels like fair play. Yeah. Yeah. So next day, she told her landlady she was moving out and gave her a copy of the police report, which noted signs of a possible intruder. For years, the experience haunted her, naturally. When she was at home alone, she felt as if she was being watched. She lived somewhere else with an attic hatch and asked oh. the landlord to put a lock on the outside of it. The house she lives in now in Illinois doesn't have an attic, thankfully. Amber Dawn lives there with her husband and two children, a dog and two birds, and she often thinks she was the only one who saw what was going on. The stranger was never caught, and she says she has sympathy for the intruder. There was no malice. And honestly, <laughs> he was the best roommate she ever had. Yeah. <laughs> he kept to himself, was quiet, and always put the toilet seat down. <laughs> no. No. Mm -mm. So Amber Dawn could never be certain, but she says she thinks she saw him once. She was mm. coming out of her apartment to go to the grocery store, and there was a guy in his mid-30s with reddish hair just sitting there as if he was waiting for something. 
He looked at her for longer than socially acceptable, and she thought it was weird. Mm. It would be important if you're living in someone's attic, you got to know their schedule, right? Like, you got to know they're out of the grocery Mm. store. I can hop out now, but I got to get back in before whatever time she's back or you're stuck out for the night. Yeah. Oh, I didn't like this story at all. All right. Well, I have to tell you guys, this actually also happened to my aunt. Uh, What? It was, well, my husband's aunt. It was not a stranger. She, they had a basement. And her daughter and her daughter's boyfriend were living in the basement and they moved out. And then later the daughter and the boyfriend broke up. And at some point the boyfriend's like, well, I don't have anywhere to live. I know of this great place. I know these old people's schedules. They don't come down in the basement ever. They don't keep a close eye on the food. And so at some point he slipped back in and they don't know when. All they know is that at some point my husband's aunt came home unexpectedly And just happened to open a closet because it wasn't like she heard something or whatever. She just opened the whole closet and he's standing there (gasps) because he had quickly hidden himself because he wasn't expecting her to come home. No, 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 And she's, you know, absolutely freaking out. And he admitted that, like, he'd been there for a long time. And (laughs) he would just stay down in the basement and then come up whenever they weren't home and eat some food and go back down. And he had just, yeah. So I don't think they ever pressed charges because they were like, well, we know the guy. He never had any intent to hurt us. He just wanted to be a freeloader. Oh my gosh. But yeah, he was there for several months at least. So that happens in the real world, apparently. Uh, Not to me. Yeah. (laughs) What a great note to end on, you guys. What the actual (laughs) F. (laughs) (laughs) So the moral of the story is if you have an attic, check it. And wreck it. Check it and wreck it. (laughs) Yeah, check it, wreck it. You know, maybe set the whole house on fire. Probably. (laughs) Manslaughter. Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Math Helps Cargo Ships See Into the Future, How Do Retro Reflectors Give You Supervision at Night, and Machine Writing is Closer to Literature's History Than You Know. So all that and more can be found at damninteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.